Episode 138 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview with Steve Gurney. Radio team, welcome along to episode 138 of the Bevan James I'll Show, the fortnightly, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness, so you can get all the benefits that go alongside it. Uh, I turned 41 yesterday, actually my birthday yesterday, I turned 41, I got lots of lovely messages on social media, so thank you to everybody who sent me those messages, it was pretty cool. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of, I don't know, when you, I don't, birthdays don't really affect me to be honest, you know, like... Maybe a decade, maybe when I get to 50, I might go, mm, 50, but you know, at this stage, birthdays aren't really affecting me, so it's just nice to get another year under my belt, and I'm excited about the next year in front of me. Today's show, well, I've got an interview with uh, a New Zealand sporting legend. Now, I know this, the Bevan James Isle Show is very much a global audience, I think I'm in like 105 countries, I've got listeners in over 105 countries, which is mind-blowing when you think about it, which is pretty cool, but... um. Steve Gurney is an athlete who's probably not that well known outside of New Zealand, at least not in certain circles. So if you're a multi-sport athlete, you probably will know his name. He is a massively successful endurance athlete. So in New Zealand, we have a race called the Coast to Coast. It's, It's a really cool race. And what they do is I live in the South Island of New Zealand. So New Zealand is kind of three islands. There's a very small island at the bottom called Stewart Island. The South Island and in the North Island. And the South Island, they have a race called the Coast to Coast. And what it is, is you race from one side of the coast to the other side. So you start on the west coast of the South Island and you race across to the east coast of the South Island. And traditionally, it was actually a two-day race. But then in the early 80s, so it came out in the early 80s. And then after a few years, they created what they call the longest day. And the longest day is you go across that coast all in one day. And it's pretty epic so they they do a short beach sprint then they cycle for about 60k or no for a few k i don't actually know the course to be honest i think it's a few 60k something like that then they they run pretty much the equivalent of like a mountain marathon then they cycle a little bit more and they jump in a kayak and they kayak i'm not quite sure how far it is but for kind of about five hours and then they get off and then they out of the kayak and they bike for about another 70k's and steve gurney won this event in his career nine times in his career and when we think of any and and the coast to coast is kind of one of the world's key endurance races and then any sport for an athlete to win an event which is one of the key events in that sport for that time frame really just shows a dominance that is pretty phenomenal. And uh, so Steve, as an athlete, has really experienced the heights of his game. Uh, but also as a person, he's a, he's a really interesting man because one thing I love about Steve is he's very open about some of his struggles, uh, some of his journey, and uh, you know just his life in general in, in a way that really helps other people open up. And so I thought I'd love to get him on the show because you know, guys, you know, you know what I love. I love this kind of the deepest stuff. And so there's this athletic side of Steve, which is really interesting, but it's also this kind of his story as a person and uh, some some really good insight in here and some quite revealing stuff. And he's he's a really good interviewer. I like interviewing people like Steve because they're not guarded. You know, sometimes you interview people and they're being guarded, and um, and in some ways. 
they're hardened to you because you know there's a deeper level, but you're not getting it from them. And I suppose as an interviewer, you're trying to you're trying to get that out of them. But with Steve's, the opposite of that is that you very much would just ask him a question, and, he, and he's quite upfront and honest about it. And again, in this interview, you're going to hear there's a couple of moments where he is quite rawly honest, and I I kind of respect and like that. So. I'm going to put that on on a few seconds from now. Uh, one thing I do want to say is if you do want to become a patron of the show, you can go to bevanjamesisles.com and the, the Patreon link is just on there. You basically just donate a little bit of your hard-earned money to a show each time I release a show. And that's how it works. So each time I release a show, you basically just give a little bit of your money towards my show. And it can be as much or as little as you want. So, you know, some people will give a lot more than others and, as far as I'm concerned, anyone's helping the show is blimmin' good in my mind. So what I want to do is I want to give a bit of a shout out to some of the people who are patrons of the show. And I'm just going to put up my little list here right now. And I'm going across to, I've got Luke Mayhem Miller. I've got Pip, the silent assassin Langford. I've got, oh, Luke Miller, you've got two nicknames because you're also Agent 101. And that's because I know you love James Bond. Well, Kate, the perfect one, Southern. We've got Robin, Robbie Big Shot Allen, and we've got Gemma and Mitch, the Divine Team Divine. Uh, these people are all patrons of the show, and they really support me and what I do. If you want to be a patron, go to www.bevanjamesisles.com, and again, it's all very clear on the website. Anyway, here is my interview with Steve Gurney. Right, I'm very excited to have a very a legend in New Zealand in multi-sport, and not just in New Zealand, worldwide, wild in multi-sport. Um, a man who's also promoting some pretty important things in society around health and kids and exercise and stuff like that, and a man who's just a bit of an impressive man. Steve Gurney, welcome to the show. Oh, you overestimate me, Devin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but nice to be chatting. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. So let's start with your athletic journey. So... Maybe just give a little bit of background for those who don't know much about your athletic journey. Tell us about, you know, Steve Gurney, the athlete. Yeah, right. So I, I was a professional athlete for about 20 years. Uh, I mean, I wasn't full professional as in, you know, a rugby player or a baseball player or whatever, but uh, in New Zealand, about as professional as you can get. And in and, and, and that I didn't have a, a full-time job, I was supplementing my income from public speaking and, um, and prize money and that sort of stuff, of course, and sponsors. But uh, I started way back in the mid-80s, probably, um, when I was a young lad, of, you know, 25 years old or something like that. I'm 55 now. And um, so it was in the days when Coast to Coast, which is a legendary race in New Zealand, some you know international listeners won't know about it. it. It starts on the west coast of the South Island, and finishes on the east coast, of course, but in between is a mountain range called the Southern Alps. And so there's mountain running and um, kayaking down a, a class two whitewater river, plus cycling. So um, that's where I kind of made my name uh, by winning that nine times. It wasn't instant, though. I, it took five attempts to win it and um, a lot of learning in that space. And parallel to that was I was doing mountain biking uh, and representing New Zealand a couple of times at the World Champs cross-country riding and then uh, there's also adventure racing of course was born in 1989 with the raid in, in, in queenstown uh or new zealand uh sorry not manapuri sort of fjordland and then that was the, the birth of adventure racing worldwide um with the eco 
um, Eco Challenge, the Primal Quest, and you know all the outdoor quests that have, you know proliferate, proliferated around the world. And so um, it was good timing to get into the sport when it was in its infancy and grow with it, and um, you know be be reasonably dominant in, 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 in my in my time. You know, and there's a lot of talented athletes come through in that time, of course. So it wasn't all easy. Um, and I retired probably 12 years ago with a bit of an injury in my, well, big injury in my ankle. So, and since then I've been um, uh, a full-time speaker, actually, conference speaker, motivational type speaker, you know, with, of course, all the metaphor and story that we had from traveling around the world doing my sport. So it's been wonderful to pass on the knowledge and the learning and the mental excellence sort of learnings I've had in a business sense and do a bit of coaching, written some books, um, autobiographical books and instruction books and you know, beginner's guide to adventure sports, stuff like that. Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell. Is that what you're after? Bevan? Yeah, mate, it's perfect. Hey, so tell us about your, your, you know, I'm really into the kind of the mind side of the game and, you know, a lot of people look at like programming and stuff, but I kind of really, I'm fascinated in kind of the journey of the self. So can you tell me some of the key lessons you learned about yourself as an athlete and strategies you use because you were successful you know and i'm always interested in the person who can consistently you know you won the coast coats and again for those who don't know it's it's an epic event um and you won it nine times yeah so 244ks and it started as a two-day event you you stop in arthur's pass and camp for the weekend oh sorry for for the night and then but then after three years they converted to have an option for a longer stay the one day race so yeah. it's about 12 hours on average sort of thing for the winning time 11 yeah. hours sometimes depending on the weather so so yeah. what kind of what kind of tell me about you know the 25 year old up until the moment where you retired what are some of the key lessons you learned around strategies and tools and perspectives that really helped you be successful as an athlete yeah that's a big question but a goodie actually um, so my success actually probably came well definitely came from not being very good at as as i started it wasn't it wasn't a natural easy thing for me to be an athlete you know at school the primary school when i was you know 10 years or so old uh you know 10 to 13 14 uh, i was always last at the school sports and it was kind of that that being last that frustration that drove me to actually explore just how good can I be? You know, I've got, I got curious, you know, do I have to be last? And then I found, you know, endurance sport. I was uh, really good at endurance sport. And, and, and that sort of drive is what drove me initially. And then when I retired from racing, it was due to injury, which is incredibly frustrating and got me actually really badly depressed for a couple of years, um, mm. like, like um, medically depressed, you know. And so that drove me to question, what drove me as an athlete to do what I did, despite not being particularly good at it as an athlete, you know, talented athlete. So, and that that opened a whole lot of, uh, well, answered a whole lot of other questions. Well, opened a whole lot of other questions whilst answering some of the simpler ones. And it was all all about what drives you as a human. And I think a lot of top athletes are probably driven. I'm guessing here, but I'm not guessing. I have a pretty good intuition that that you know a lot of them are driven like me. They're driven to try and prove something. And in our younger years, we probably don't even know it. It's just unconscious drive to prove that we're good enough or lovable or need to prove something to the bully that beat us up or our parents or something. We need to prove something. And, and, and then it's not until later on when you become old and had the midlife crisis that, that a lot of us discover what it actually was, a, you know, what that drive's about. And I think and that's nothing wrong with that at all. It's actually what it is to be human. But it's good to be curious, like you are, about what, makes a, a top athlete what drives them to, to win what drives them to enjoy their sport and you know i think 
that leads to the next segues nicely to the next point I want to make is that um, you know for the first ten years of my career I was putting the cart before the horse you know the wrong way around I was trying to get enjoyment by winning. Um, and it wasn't in the second half of my career that I actually got wins by enjoying it. Oh, well. And I think, and that's probably really important, I think, if you want to get sustainable wins, is to figure out how to enjoy it, you know? And um, and that kind of, yeah, we're getting quite deep and meaningful here. But, yeah, that's but, how we roll, mate. That's what we're here for. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, nowadays I'm helping in my coaching in business and in sport, I'm helping people to understand or get a bit of a feeling about what might be their purpose on the planet. Because then when you set goals that support your purpose on the planet, you become unstoppable. Mm. And, um, you know, when we're younger, I think it's just testosterone or, you know, as a female, I don't know what exactly, but that sort of thing that drives us to prove ourselves. And as we get older, it's more the mental side of things that drive us to improve ourselves rather than the physical. You, you say there was a moment, you know, you, your, your career transitioned away from trying to find happiness through winning, through happiness through enjoying. Was there a moment that kind of made you discover that? Well, there's, there wasn't. Uh, well, there's a few things. That's another good question. There's a few things that all culminated over a couple of years. And first one was um, um, I'd got introduced uh, to the field of NLP, you know. And mm. you mentioned about programming before. And it's not necessarily something you want to talk about here, but I think it's important actually. NLP's um, sports psychology, basically. Yeah. It's, it sounds fancy, neuro linguistic programming, but it's actually really basic. It's about understanding what the people do in their brains that gets them their results in lives. You know, what sort of things do they visualize? You know, how do they visualize their goal? Is it bright and colorful and close up? Or, you know, is it dark and distant and black and white and fuzzy? It's about what sort of things do we say to ourselves and, and what tone of voice do we say to ourselves? Uh, your things, you know, do we love ourselves in the way we speak to ourselves? Are we encouraging to ourselves? You know, it's okay to talk to yourself. It's pretty normal, actually. <laughs> and, and as one of my instructors said one, one day, so, yeah, science has proved it's perfectly healthy to talk to yourself. The only trouble is when you... When there's two voices talking to yourself, and then you've got to go to couples counseling. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a joke. You know, so it's all normal, and it's just about understanding what we're doing and doing it more consciously. Um, and so NLP is also about, you know, um, the richness with which we describe our goals to ourselves and how we plan it. You know, like, do we um, imagine what it's like, and you know, not just on the finish line winning, and, and do we think about what's it like in the weeks and months afterwards or what's it like on the journey to it, you know, when we're still doing our training and how do we make our training really fun? Um, and, you know, also about how do we, what sort of fears and obstacles do we put in our way and how do we understand that and, and find ways around that? For example, phobias. A lot of the kayakers I teach um, when I'm coast-to-coast coaching, you know, I see that their running and biking is going really well, but their kayaking is crap and it's not improving. And I'm, so, you know, have, I said, sit down and have a good old chat with them and figure out what, what's going on. And and uh, many, many, many times it's been because they've had a bad experience as a kid with water and oh. they've got developed a phobia of or a fear of being or worried about being trapped upside down in their kayak with a spray skirt on. And um, and it's, it's just an irrational fear because something happened as a, you know, a kid, you know, they fell off the boat and their uncle rescued them before they drowned, you know. It could be something like that. Or... Um, you know, jumping in the swimming pool when they're a little youngster and not being able to get out. And so NLP has reason or has, has systems where you can just, you know, fix that, you know, teach your brain a new way to think about it. And it's only a half an hour, you know, 30 minute process. And, you know, I do that with my kayaking clients and you see them just, their kayaking just takes off and they're enjoying it and they get really good results because of that. So it's, 
that's that's another aspect of NLP. You know, understanding what blocks are we doing in our heads um, that are that aren't actually real. They're just um, they're, it's fear trying to protect us from from hurting ourselves or killing ourselves. So that was instrumental. So you asked, you know, what happened? Was there a moment? So I got introduced to that field of NLP, and uh, you know, it's understanding what was going on in my brain and and how I could be more powerful in my brain and getting the results I wanted. There's also um, I got introduced to my mentor, Graham Felton, who rest his soul, he died a couple of years ago, but um, he was a very wise man and just, you know, he'd, he'd teach me the basics of getting organized, um, a to-do list and all the demands that you have on your, in, uh, you know, in your office and home and bills to pay. Like. Uh, there's also uh, another major one was I, I got a, z- a disease, leptospirosis, um, mm. from a race we were doing in uh, Borneo. Um, it was the Red Gulwaz race, the third one. Yeah, I think 95 or something like that. Yes, 1995. And um, the last stage, we had to go through the Mulu Caves. And, and um, naive as we were, we didn't realize that these bats in the caves, there's millions of them, of course, it's the world's biggest cave system. Um, they, these bats had a disease called leptospirosis that you can catch um, if you get a, get their poo in, your, in a cut or you know maybe a splash in your eye and, um, or, dare I say it, on, on your food and you eat it. Um, it's mucous membrane sort of thing uh, that, you know, I came out really sick, nearly died, very, very, very close to dying with um, unconscious in a coma, three life support machines, blah, blah, blah. So that was a big wake-up call about why am I doing my sport? And, uh, of course, the, I had kidney failure and, and the, the, the nephrologist, the, you know, the kidney specialist said, oh, you should probably not do any more of the racing. It's pretty hard on your kidneys because it's, die, you know, a lot of hot conditions diuretic dehydration sort of stuff so and that was a like a red flag to a bull <laughs> I thought, no, i'm not gonna stop my racing i was in that unconsciously driven stage of my career you know i gotta win gotta win gotta win and uh and so that was actually um more motivational you know the fact you might not be able to race again maybe race even harder and that's where my wins started coming from as well along with the nlp learning about how to have more fun and how to get more powerful what's my mind doing it's interesting because as a character for those who don't know steve what one thing that's always come across is you you don't lack fun you know you've always had lots of personality <laughs> you've always kind of pushed the edge and you know you've always been known within kind of the public perception at least that you're lots of fun so you're saying through that experience you felt you need to bring more fun back for you good question um yeah 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 um it was yeah that's pretty accurate actually i think uh, i I, yeah, as you say, ever since I was, you know, at university, I've decided, no, stuff being shy. I was super, super shy when I was a kid, and I thought, no, let's get out and be a bit more energetic and involved, and so I joined the canoe club, which was legendary. The University of Canterbury Canoe Club was a good bunch of mates. Instead of being pissheads like other engineers at university, we were always out in the weekends kayaking and uh, getting in the wilderness, and and these really down to the souls but we just had genuine fun you know and so that's when i thought yeah just your fun was okay but when i got halfway through you know that leptospirosis thing we talked about i realized that a lot of that fun in my race you know at university i'd been having genuine fun and they got quite serious fun wanting to win races and it was too serious and then to bring back some of the um, what I call intrinsic motivation rather than extrinsic motivation so intrinsic motivation i wanted to figure out how do I get drive and motivation from within rather than designing things to make it funny? I mean, let me put it another way. 
it's useful to have as many forms of motivation as you can, but I want to get more in touch with that purpose on the planet motivation. Why, how is winning these races going to support my mission in, in life? Or when I get to you know, my deathbed, if you like, you want to be a bit morose, you know, and how am I going to make sure I have no regrets? Because actually that was one thing that happened, Bevan. Um, well, you were on your deathbed, you literally were, so. I was, <laughs> I was in, I was in hospital in Malaysia and I got a whole lot of get well cards from New Zealand. And one of them contained a desiderata from an old lady. She was on her deathbed and, you know, desiderata is reflections on life from a wise old person. Oh, really? Usually, usually as they're about to die and what advice do they have to the world or their great-grandchildren or whatever. And so this was a lady who was writing advice as she was, you know, in her final weeks of life. And she said, oh, I've had a good life, you know, but dot, 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 if I had my life again, I'd do things differently. And here I was on my near deathbed, and they'd said, oh, actually, you're probably going to survive. And I thought, wow, that's actually, that letter that lady's written is actually a list of regrets. And uh -huh. how tragic is that? Yeah. And how would it be if this was my deathbed? Would I have a list of regrets or would I have a blank piece of paper? And so I then resolved, well, I can life's pretty short. <laughs> Let's make sure whenever my deathbed actually does arrive, make sure it's a pretty blank piece of paper if you can, you know? Make sure there's no wish I'd done these things. So that's an away from motivation. There's different types of motivation, of course. There's toward motivation and away from motivation. So toward motivation is setting some... Uh, well, you know, a BHAG, you know, um, a big, hairy, audacious goal, you know, something that's really challenging you outside your comfort zone so much that you feel excitedly nervous about it. So that's a toward motivation, setting a really attractive goal. Away from motivation, we've all had as kids, you know, tidy your room or you're not allowed outside to play or, or as adults, we get pay your, your, your GST, on, you know, your tax on time or you'll get the penalty, you know, so that's away from motivation. And so the... The, me not wanting to have any regrets on my deathbed after reading that desiderata is, a, is an away from type motivation. Um, and couple that with toward motivation and it's really powerful. So set really cool, exciting goals, plus also examine what regrets you'd have if you didn't do this or didn't fix, finish this by this end of the phase of your life. So, you know, I realised as an athlete, I've only got a finite uh, few years to, to when I'm at my peak. So you just want to make the most of those. It's interesting. We've talked about how that moment kind of shifted you as an athlete, and it kind of it allowed you to get more into the moment, not necessarily the outcome. Um, how did it shift you as a person outside of being an athlete? Ooh, um, yeah. <laughs> this is there's a little little um, there's a little quote I used to have on the bottom of my email that says, um, "I lead a balanced lifestyle." everything to the excess oh, nice. <laughs> but but in actual fact you as an athlete as a top athlete it's very imbalanced your lifestyle will be and, as, and uh, as any driven person whether it be sport or business or whatever your goals are if you're out there out you know the bell curve if you're on the five or 2.5 percent on the extremity of the bell curve you're not going to be balanced you know in terms of what our normal Western society calls balance. Mm. You're going to be an extremist, and that's probably what it takes to to succeed, actually. Mm. And you've got to you've got to weigh it up. You know, am I prepared to make those sacrifices? And you know, when I was younger, uh, yeah, I didn't party, I didn't drink much at all. You know, occasionally, yeah, but because in, in endurance sport, you can't afford to get dehydrated because of stuff you're training up for the next few days, so you don't drink. And you need an early night so you can get up and go training the next day. And um, parties just waste the weekend, you know. So 
um, that was a sacrifice you made socially, you know. And I was pretty much a loner in those days. There's not many other, there weren't many other professional athletes who could go training during the day. So I did most of my training on my own. And so the chickens that come home to roost now, I'm, I'm actually pretty lonely. You know, I'm single, yeah. never be married, don't have kids. And so I'm paying the price now. Yeah. And as a 55 year old, it's not a nice place to be. And um, so, yeah, all your mates in normal life have had kids, you know, now in their retirement, not retirement, but now they've got the money and the time to go and go out and do some adventures. And I'm busy <laughs> thinking, damn, I'd like to start being a father. <laughs> um, anyone out there wants to have kids with me? <laughs> and it's kind of too late, you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, any nubile or marriageable woman that I'm sort of approaching, think I'm a dirty old man because I'm 55 <laughs> and I need someone in their 35 you know, or whatever. Uh, so it's pretty tough, Bevan. Um, it's something I'm dealing with at the moment. So I just tell that as an example of the imbalance or the lifestyle that you do sacrifice to sometimes achieve your goals when you're younger mm. or at any age, I suppose. Um, I forget what your question was. Did that answer it? No, no. Well, the, that kind of life-defining moment. What else did? It, where did you grow from that? Um, outside of just being an athlete, you know. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Outside, so that's what I was saying. Outside of being an athlete, it's, yeah. You know, normal life's not normal. So, um, uh, yeah, probably all I can say on that, I suppose. So you, you mentioned um, before uh, that post post being an athlete, you kind of suffered a bit of depression. What got you through it? Because, you know, I can imagine, first of all, once you, you know, you're the star of the world, you're the man, you know, you turn up everyone, you know, there's this kind of, there's an ego, there's an aura, there's a respect, you know, there's a lot of things you get from being that guy. And then suddenly that's kind of disappears. I actually remember I read an article from you years ago talking about how after winning the coast, it'd always be a a period afterwards, which was emotionally quite challenging um, because of the down of after the high. Can you tell us about that and then maybe tell us, even when it got really bad once you gave up your career, how you worked through that time to get to a healthier place? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I've, I've, good question. And it's, it's, I wrote a whole book on this, so it's going to be hard to jam it into five minutes. But yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of documented in my book, Lucky Legs, which is autobiography, and Eating Dirt, which is the second half of it. Um, but to put it in a nutshell, I suppose... First of all, there's a realisation that, yeah, when you are the man and you are at the top of your sport, there's usually ego. And, yeah, my ego was a bit out of control, a bit arrogant. And so the key, uh, you know, since I've retired from racing and suffered a bit, you know, emotionally and spiritually, I've sort of the key is to realise, to become present to that and to be aware that there is ego there. And, and then you can choose a different response if you want. And awareness is the biggest thing, uh, being present instead of thinking sometime in the future. Mm. And so, and speaking of that, there's a good segue. So the dark hole you fall in after winning a race is usually because there's, you haven't reset, I hadn't reset my goal for the next goal, you know. So if, if you know, like let's say a coast-to-coast race, I've been training, you know, in earnest, focusing on this race for, for, for six months and everything's geared towards that, your attitude, your training, everything, social life a lot. And then finally the race is over phew, everything's, well, there's no sort of purpose anymore. So the way around that is to have already set the next race in your sights. You know, what's the next one I'm going to? It might be another race in Australia or it might be the Moto Challenge or mountain biking or whatever. And so you're already planning for that one and you don't, you know, I don't 
I found that was a solution. You don't fall in a hole of of depression. But the bigger picture is is actually to understand what's going on in your brain. This is where the NLP was so useful was to mm. to notice what's happening in my head that caused that depression, that sadness, that you know the the big black hole after a race, and 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 that usually was around well big big topic to cover but we as humans like to improve our lot we always want to have goals we want to be we always want the, the you know to be fitter or we always want to have the next uh model of car or the 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 the, the fashionable t-shirt that's not you know that they haven't got yet you know and so and so it is with um uh, racing we always want to focus on winning the next race or getting better and that's about living in the future and if you there's an there's an author Eckhart Tolle who who's famous for the power of now concept is about living in the moment rather than living in the future all the time. And he says you know so humans are just so prone to this. This is what you know. It's no it's not. Don't beat yourself up about it. But we we tend to uh, say well I'll be happy once I've got my better house or be happy once i've got a bigger car or i'll be happy once i've won 10 coast to coast <laughs> and, and yeah so this is how it was when i won when my first coast to coast i got there and yeah it was good for a few months and then that emptiness came back again and you thought oh maybe have, maybe happiness actually only comes when you've won two coast to coast so, you, so it goes on and on and on and finally i won nine but not my tenth and that was a that was a uh, a, a real grain of sand in your underpants you know that really itched and bothered me and so that caused me to figure out, well, actually, yeah, I am living in the future. And um, that's where that dark hole of disappointment after winning, achieving your goal comes from, is you're always living in the future. And actually, you have to sometimes, or no, we have to as often as we can live in the present moment. And that's really hard for athletes who are goal-driven because we mostly live in the future. And yeah, sure, you have to live in the future so you can plan to um, pay your bills work and paint the house and all those sorts of things, mow the lawn. But um but what Eckhart Tolle is saying is try and live in the future as less as you can and in the moment as much as you can, um in a, in a practical sense. So you know, meditation for example, that's living in the moment at its extreme. It's really hard for most athletes. Mm. But if you can manage to do some form of meditation, it could be qigong or something like that, you know, where you you're quietening your mind. For many athletes, it's out going for a ride on the hills, you know, and below anaerobic threshold. You know, just a recovery ride. You know, that can be your meditation type stuff. Mm. But it's it, it'd be nice to be able to do that without having a crutch like your bike or whatever. Can you do it in just any moment? Yeah. Um, when you choose. One thing you've done a lot in the recent time is um, with the coast to coast has been um, kind of mentoring young kids from lower decile areas to get into the sport, and also yeah. you've done a lot of coaching. Um, You've helped, you know. You're, I'm, you're, I'm sure you've been a mentor for many people throughout your journey. I'm just kind of curious, you know. It's one thing to try influence yourself, but when you're trying to guide somebody else, what have been some of the things that you've been really successful with, and maybe what have been some of the struggles with that as well? Yeah. Okay. Uh, where do we start with that? Big question. Well, it's incredibly satisfying to be able to put something back into the sport or back into some people that need some or can use your help. Um, and that's where we've been going with these uh, youth at risk, you know, the, the kids that are destined for jail or whatever or trouble and um, will need some help. Um, and so it wasn't my initiative, it was the Moffats actually, mate, of mine, Steve Moffat and his daughter Jess and um, some other team around that. And I've just been invited to be part of that. And it's been incredibly, uh, it's been a blessing, you know, really nice to be able to, to put something back. Um, 
so um, there's a movie actually coming out. Oh, it's showing at the film festival uh, this week and next oh, wow. week. I think it's called East to East about those guys um, in, in Linwood uh, who we took through the coast to coast. Um, and Jess Moffat and the uh, team are, are still doing this uh, every year. We take on a new crowd, and you know, like last year or this year actually, yeah, we every year. Um, I usually do the kayaking league with them in a double kayak, you know, so they're, they're accompanying you the whole way by previous champions like Nathan Farber and Emily and those sorts of people. Me as good. Um, so that's what that's about. And yeah, we just want to keep on doing that and, and showing these these young folks that there's more to life than, you know, the crap that and the crime that goes on in, in a city, you know, let's get out in the wilderness and see what's happening out there and what, what, show, show them. What, what do they learn? Like when, as you see these kids in the experience, you see a light bulb go on you see yeah you do you see them realize shit there's a whole lot more out there than they they than they realize there's uh, you know it's a social construct all the stuff they've been doing and you know in the the city this is more about the wilderness and the world and connection to to what really is um they also see all these other athletes who are doing healthy things you know they're they're not doing alcohol and drugs and stuff like that they're they're out there training and they they Mm. treat their their body as a temple and respect for the wilderness and respect for the being you know bobbing down a river being at one with the river and being in the in the forest the beach forest and smelling the forest and feeling the mud on your feet and um and connecting it's you know like earthing and so there's that aspect there's also you see it was all very well doing that in training and seeing them grow there but um grow from young boys to young men you know it's quite a, a, a lovely change to see yeah. them mature in their responses you know they're quite immature when they're doing training well it's just saying stupid things and doing stupid things and hard to get out training but by the time the race comes around you see they're actually realizing the mental discipline that's needed there and i think that's what one thing they really are missing is the mental discipline and then you know taitama he really surprised us he was the first one of the two was taitama and bryce and Taitama was one of the hardest to get out of out of the house and come training with us um, to get him to you know be disciplined enough. But then he surprised us all. You know, he could have blown us over the knocked us over the feather. He uh, he entered the mountain run version the next year oh, of his own accord. We we didn't have to wow. we didn't encourage him to. He just next thing we knew it, he told us uh, he told us that um, he'd entered. So that was really nice to see. So you can make a difference. The one thing I do worry about though is, you know, you can show some people a new thing, but to to get people who you know kids or youth who are really in trouble truly out of trouble you need to actually remove them extract them from the environment that they're big and if we pop them back into that environment after it's shown the coast to coast they're likely to head back off the rails again so um that's that's the one thing we haven't been able to do yet Mm. but in saying that once you've once they've experienced the coast to coast they can't unexperience it you know they'll always know it's there Mm. and hopefully that's a guiding light to them in, in, in later years but to answer your other question about coaching and putting stuff back, one of the key things about coaching I've found is that you can't lecture at someone and tell them how to do stuff and be sustainable. Yes, you can do that, and but it's not sustainable. What One of the key tenets for coaching uh, that I maintain, and this is the same with the NLP um, learning I've had, is that a person already really does know the answers in their head. You just have to be the sounding board mm-hmm. or be the, the, the medium that you can question them and ask them okay well you know what do you think you should do here and what would be a powerful way to do this what would be a powerful way to get fit and um what things do you need to do to be able to plan to do this and get them to find their answers themselves and that's that's the more sustainable way in other words 
teach a man to fish rather than give him a fish for a day, you know? So yeah. was it give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime. So that's what coaching is about, really. But and, was that a hard thing to translate? Because I know, you know, it's we're all very good at giving our opinion on how to be successful in an area, aren't we? You know, look, look yeah. at relationship advice. We're all bloody good at giving relationship advice, aren't we? <laughs> you know, and so... Um, <laughs> You know, like it's 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 understandable to say that, but a lot of people can't actually apply it. What was the key for you as a mentor slash coach to be able to be the person who could be the mirror, not the guider? If you get what I mean. Yeah. Oh, let, let me take. Let me just clarify it a bit. Sometimes the client does they they pay you for advice. Yeah. You know, tell me what I should do. Write my schedule for me. Yeah. I'd rather teach them how to write their own schedule than write a schedule for them. Yeah. So. But what the, I guess the turning point was understanding ego, you know, <laughs> it's that old Eckhart Tolle thing because, um, you know, he, he talks about living in the present moment, but he also talks about the pain body and the ego, um, which has a, you know, it's always wanting to be, the ego is really cunning, it's always wanting to be right, you know, yeah. and so the, that's, that's what stops you being a really good coach, I think, is ego, and I think it's just understanding ego and putting it to the back. Tell it to shut up a bit, and um, nicely tell it to shut up, and and uh, and then the next step is empathy. You've got to understand what's going on in that client's or my customer's world. You know what what is it like seeing it from through their eyes rather than mm-hmm. through my eyes, and um, and sitting beside them rather than across the desk from them. Mm-hmm. It's, to me, that's number one, isn't it? If you can show true understanding, then you can help guide people. You know, yeah. you know, a yeah. lot of people come into it with their own context of what they think someone else is going through. But yeah. how do you know until you really show understanding or empathy? That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah go and walk a shore and uh, a mile. There's a little saying, um, if you really want to understand someone, uh, walk a mile in their shoes. That way <laughs> you've got their shoes and they're a mile away. But no, in seriousness though, yeah, you've got to walk a, walk a mile in their shoes to understand what it's like in their shoes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I another question. Just, you, your joke made me totally forget my next question. Um, we, we, when, as, a, as someone listening to the show, and we've got a pretty broad audience here because it's not necessarily an endurance sport audience. Hmm. But, you know, a lot of people really struggle with exercise. And, and let's be honest, this is something you and I find pretty easy if you, you know, get yeah. out and doing some exercise. Yeah. Yeah. What would be your advice to the person out there who, you know, the idea of going for a run seems like the climbing Mount Everest? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually love to step way back out, like get into a bloody spaceship even, or a helicopter, or get, get, and get a big perspective on, on, on your life or the world or, or New Zealand or whatever and think, well, actually, how, why, why is it hard for, for me to go for a run or why, what's, what's happening here? And yeah, like, so this is a big issue at the moment with you know, obesity, diabetes, yeah. all those sorts of issues. What's stopping people from actually getting out and doing exercise? And so when I say perspective, in this case, I like to think, right, let's go back several generations or millennia or centuries, whatever you like to call it, and think it's only in the, for starters, it's only in the last generation or two generations that we've been modifying things. You know, it's an exponential growth curve where with technology, diet, food, exercise, sitting in a car, all those sorts of things have really grown. And for centuries and centuries and centuries before that, this human body has really evolved to. I'm putting it around the wrong way. If we, if we look back at our predecessors, our, this machine, which we call a body, this body wasn't designed to to eat packaged food. It wasn't designed to sit in the car or it wasn't designed to sit at a desk. And it can't evolve in the time we're expecting it to evolve, i.e. two generations. So in actual fact, this machine 
likes to run on food that's freshly out of the garden, freshly out of the ground, freshly picked off a tree, or protein that's just been running around a few minutes or hours ago, you know, and we've, it's meat, or freshly caught fish or whatever. And um, so we can't expect it to perform and stay slim and healthy if we're doing all this other stuff to it, like not exercising and sitting sedentary and eating that sort of food and um, staying up, you know, watching telly all night, you know, that's not natural. It's not, it's not something this machine has designed to do. So once we've got that perspective, you've got to think, well, okay, what is it that's stopping us then in this modern world? And it really boils down to laziness. You know, and um, I jump straight to it there, and it may sound egotistical to say that, but if 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 we went through a you know sat down for half an hour and just I did reflective listening with someone, yeah, you know, a form of coaching, mm-hmm. then um, they would come to this realization that well, actually, yeah, it is just because we're being lazy. We we're seduced by um, technology. We're seduced by sugar and fat and salt, and um, it's natural though the brain naturally always always seeking an easier way to do stuff mm. it's always it's not lazy really it's it just wants to make life easier and so you've got to understand that that level of motivation and we jump straight to the point here in, in one minute or two minutes but you know I, I like to take a more circuitous route to get the, you know expl- take more time to to come to this conclusion that uh, we just need to take a you know concrete pill and, and realize <laughs> uh, or, or we just need to understand that what we're doing by not exercising and what we're doing by eating these refined foods is actually not natural and it's not how we're going to get the best performance and it's not how we're going to get the best longevity or sustainability out of our lives mm-hmm. just just two more questions oh, um, can i just can i just add to that yeah, you go. that was that was an away from type attitude so then then i'd like to flip that over and say well actually what would it be like if we did eat really good food and if we did do the right sort of exercise and then paint the bright toward motivation picture of um, something that's really compelling. So we've got away from and toward motivation going so that that, that client or that person that I'm talking to will, will suddenly you know, feel way more um, happy to be driven towards a, you know, a healthier lifestyle. Mm. One thing you're, you're, you're really big on and quite vocal in New Zealand, which I really love, is this kind of let kids be kids. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, whoo, another big subject, but um, <laughs> let me let me start by saying, okay, there's a school near where I live that has banned kids outside to play when there's icy puddles, i.e., a frost, because one kid fell over and broke their wrist, and so they think it's unsafe for kids to do that. The same school and most schools in New Zealand now have. Uh, all the trees were there in the playground with the lower branches chopped out so kids can't climb the trees anymore. Now, you and I and many of the older listeners here will um, have been in their childhood allowed to climb trees and we all fell out of trees and we hurt ourselves and we used to have go-karts or trolleys and we crashed and we didn't wear helmets and we hit our heads and we broke an arm or two here and there and we did fall over in icy puddles and we did hurt ourselves but and you know, but but that's that's why we're still alive now in our field of adventure sport because I know that falling out of a tree a couple of meters really hurt me or broke my wrist, but falling off that cliff which is ten meters high is going to kill me because you know I have a measure of comparison, mm. and so we're breeding kids who are a bit naive. The same thing's happening in our sport now. So I remember when I started, you know, twenty five years ago, the, the the local 
Lions Club or Rotary Club ran a charity uh, fundraising triathlon for us. You know, he said, okay, they, they didn't know how anything about sport or anything. They just wanted to get make some money for their to put back into the community. So they said, right, oh, no, you start over there and you run up that hill and you finish over there and you have a bike, kayak and run. Go to it. Figure it out yourself. And, you know, we got a wee bit hurt here and there and um, made some mistakes, broke a boat or two and a half and crashed off our bikes now and then. But we figured it out and it was incredibly satisfying to have got to the end. We figured out the skills we needed for training and managed the risk on the day. And we got to the end, looked back and said, shit, what a, what a ride. That was, that was a hoot. And that, a sense, that appeals to our sense of confidence. You know, we can manage our own risk and that grows our self-esteem. And I think that's kind of encoded in the hunter-gatherer sort of survivalist DNA we have as well as humans. And so something happened in New Zealand, uh, ooh, I can't remember what year it was, 10 years ago or something like that, where, no more than that, 15 years ago, where a cyclist died on a downhill race. And it was, yeah. it was a cycle race to Akara called Le Race. And the organiser got um, convicted of criminal nuisance in a court of law. Um, and I think, you know, that's it, it, absolutely wrong. It's, it's, it's tragic that the athlete died, and I really feel for the family, but the police took it upon themselves, um, probably with some encouragement, to, to uh, take this organiser of the race to court. And I think the organiser of the race actually should have deserved a medal for providing a forum for athletes to be able to go and train and test themselves. And in other words, the, 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 it's a blame mentality that um, it's actually, who's, gonna, who's to blame here? Any, and usually is anyone except the blooming person who made the mistake themselves, which i.e. the athlete. So what's happened, this is a long story, so I'm going to cut to the chase now. So what's happened is WorkSafe have stepped in and said, no, no, you have to have all these things checked off or every safety thing checked off now. Uh, in a race, you have to go through and mark off all the hazards. You have to um, tick these boxes on this form and make a report and you have to mark off the safety tape and cones and banners where the edge of the cliff is and where the sharp rock is and where that branch is. So cutting to the chase, <laughs> races have, very become, have become very sanitised. Nothing like that original Lions Club fundraiser event um, where everything is supposedly checked off, all the risks are managed, and athletes can just throw themselves at the race with gay abandon without having to think about the risk of themselves. I.e., we're breeding stupid athletes, athletes who can't think for themselves, can't manage their own risk. And ironically, the races are so easy and soft that there's no sense of satisfaction in doing them anymore because you don't have to manage your own risk and training and skills. So they're not attractive anymore and uh, as much. And um, I think that's, that's very clear in my racing because I've seen it and experienced it. It's also definitely happening in the workplace. So, you know, I've seen it happening there too. And I think um, this is a dangerous place we're going to. I think this is where adventure racing is really good because it still enables athletes to make some of their own risk management choices um, and why a lot of the races are going to third world countries where there isn't any work, workplace health and safety sort of requirement so that they can put a more genuine adventure race on, uh, one that isn't sort of like a Disneyland race that we'd have to do in New Zealand now because of, well, I mean, God's own still managing, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm uh, involved in the organisational side of God's own, and I, I, I see the, the health and safety hoops that they have to jump through. So it's a very dangerous precedent we're setting by controlling stuff too much. And you can, you know, we can have a race organiser or an, uh, an official go through and do the tick box thing on the on the clip chart, uh, clipboard thing, and supposedly list up all the hazards. But you will never, ever, ever manage all of the hazards, and so that's a very dangerous precedent to set. And to, so what do we do about it? Well, I think we can't change the government very easily, but what we can do is we can manage the people in our sphere of influence, you know, our family, our kids, our school, 
and, and encourage kids and, and adults to that, for that matter to be able to go out and just explore the limits and, and, and make their own choices and, and explain to kids why you shouldn't do it. Don't, don't say, oh, you sh you, you're not allowed to climb that tree. You say, well, if you climb the tree and you fall out, you break your arm, so your choice, off you go and make your own decisions. Mm -hmm. And that's the effect, effect we can have. And I also, <laughs> this is really contentious, Bev, and I'm not sure if I've mentioned on your show, but I'm going to anyway. Go on. Um, I think we need to let natural selection rule a bit. Let me tell you about a race. <laughs> let me tell you about a race. Well, actually, no, let me tell you about a thing. We drive across the McKenzie country a lot. You know, there might be four of us in the car with mountain bikes on the back. We're going um, on a four-hour drive to a mountain bike race. And the McKenzie country where we drive across, there's a lot of rabbits. And we've got a rule, though. Whoever's driving, we're sheer driving. Whoever's driving is not allowed to swerve for a rabbit if one runs across in front of a car. Yep. Because, you know, we, we assume, and I think it's correct, that four human lives are probably worth more than one rabbit life. So yep. if we squash the rabbit, and it's not nice squashing rabbit, but... But you're making a calculation. I actually course. think we're doing. I actually think we're doing the rabbit population a, 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 a favour by squashing the rabbits that tend to run on the roads. We're eliminating that DNA that is foolish, and and, and so the DNA of the rabbits that tend to play out in the paddocks um, that is getting the DNA pool is getting smarter, and. You know, I, I love that justification. I, I, yeah. It's now, wicked best, but I'll give it to you. Uh, no, it's not weak at all. You apply it across <laughs> to the human race. <laughs> and, you know, what sort of people are we allowing to to survive, dare I say? And this is where it's contentious. I know we, we don't want people to hurt themselves, but we've got to let nature evolve us to being smart, you know, and yeah. let people hurt themselves. Even if they even if they don't die, at least they hurt themselves and they learn. They've got to allow people to hurt themselves. And the same, here's another good example. It's a real-life example. Uh, we did an adventure, a, a world record across the Sahara Desert. We, we crossed it by wind power on kites, you know, kites wow. and buggies. So Peter Lynn, a famous, famous worldwide but not New Zealand kite manufacturer, he's a very, very smart man. He's uh, got factories around the world, but they make kites, uh, high-performance kites for kite surfing, kites for kiting across the Sahara Desert, buggies and those sorts of things. Also carnival kites, world record size flying octopus and stuff like that, you know carnival kites and so with every new kite he writes a, an instruction manual how to set the kite up how to tie the knots how to launch it and of course there's the back pages there's the compulsory safety notes you know do not fly your kites next to thunderstorm next to power lines don't fly your kites in thunderstorms and you know peter being a very intelligent man got really sick and tired of all the safety crap and he's he's ripped those pages out screwed them up and replaced them with one sentence it says warning Kite flying is subject to Darwinism. You know, and I really think we need to let go of the reins a bit here and let people learn from themselves. And Because yeah. uh, otherwise, we're breeding people who just are stupid. And what sort of world would that be to live in? Yeah, and, and also kids. Because, you know, what, what does that, what are we limiting them from is probably the big thing as well. It's not just that, that kind of self, self mechanism about how to live safely. It's also what experiences aren't they having that they're missing out on because of safety? Oh, school camps, all that sort of stuff, falling <laughs> by the wayside because it's. Parents are too afraid to go because of you know the possibility of litigation if someone gets hurt or all the sexual things about it. You know, it's just it's just the fear is actually doing the wrong thing. Yeah, it really mm. is. Hey, Steve, if, if uh, a question I like to ask is uh, when you're being your best, who is Steve Gurney? When I'm being my best, oh, that's a big question. Um, yeah, okay, I'm, I think I'm I'm curious. I, I always have this curiosity. How can how can we have more you know how can we have more fun doing this how can we uh do this better how can we um grow people more out of this or is there another way there's more than one right answer mm. and um 
I'm also being fun and jovial, but smart, you know? Yeah, so you nice. can have fun while doing stuff, and that brings out the best in a person, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. Hey, thanks for your time today, mate. You're a bloody legend. Uh, lots of great insight on there, mate. Just, I really appreciate it. If people want to get in contact with you or follow you, where do they go? I was at my website, stevedurney.co.nz. Okay, good times. Thanks for your time, mate. You're a star. Cheers, man. Thanks. Rightio, so there is my interview with Steve Gurney. Hopefully you got a lot out of that. Um, as I said, I, I love, as I said before the interview, I just love kind of his honesty, um, how he's, you know, he's not guarded, is he? You know, and, and obviously you're a, a guy who's got to a really high level, but also had to learn to deal with some of the struggles of that. And um, yeah, just I really enjoyed talking to Steve. He's a, he's a guy, he's, um, one of the things, he has a bit of a crazy soul. And uh, we talked about that a little bit in the interview, but he was always quite renowned as someone who loves to push the edge. And uh, when he did the Coast to Coast, every year there'd be some kind of gimmick. But often gimmicks that are about making race. Like one time we did it in the cycle, we did this, the cycle league. And it was almost, it was like this big wind trap thing. <laughs> it was, it's hard to describe. Maybe I'll try to find a photo of it and put it in the show notes um, to get a wind advantage. But he was always just kind of trying to be innovative. And I want, it was really cool. So, you know, that's Steve Gurney. I'm going to be back in a couple of weeks from now. I've got a topic which um, I find really fascinating, actually. Really, really fascinating. It's a topic that I used to think about a lot and I hadn't thought about it much. Um, because partly because I don't have a child in my life as much now. My daughter's travelling, she's overseas, Tyler's, you know, living that life. And so I have a child, but it's not a child who is in my day-to-day life, like a young child. And, um, yeah, so I've got a topic that I used to think about a lot when my daughter was younger, but I haven't thought about it in a lot in a while. And then it popped up in my head again recently, and I thought, oh, I need to do a podcast on that. So... On the next episode, that's what I'm going to do a podcast on. So, anyway, that's pretty much me for the show. If you want to email me, bevanjames at gmail.com. If you want to become a patron, go to bevanjamesisles.com. And other than that, just keep being you, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks' time.